I'm going to get started here. So looking at the syllabi, we're both, all three classes really kind of aligned perfectly this week, where we're going to talk about the legalities and how the special education process works. Um, I don't know how far we'll get today. We're going to start with the initial evaluation and talk a lot about that um, and look at what the federal government says needs to be done and what Illinois has says needs to be done. And then we're also going to kind of look at what our surrounding states do because there is very much discrepancy between states on how they approach and this evaluation of special education. Um, this, I really think is kind of the crux of the issue a lot of times with special education is we're operating under a federal law, IDEA, um, and then a federal law sets up some boundaries, but it is like all federal laws, whatever we don't say, then the states can fill in. Um, defer to the states. Well, then the states make laws or regulations or routines, but each state doesn't have the exact same laws, rules, or routines of how they interpret IDEA. So it gets confusing when you go from state to state and move state to state. So that's what we're going to try to unpack today because there's always discussion about how, how things do it. And then districts interpret the state law differently as well. And so your district will do, um, have a procedure of how they do evaluations. And then that's, the, that's what you typically follow. And sometimes you'll even get it down to the schools do it slightly different depending on what school it is, if it's primary or secondary. So there, there's this hierarchy all the way down of this is the law. This is how we interpret it to states. This is how your district interprets it. This is how your school interprets it. This is how your special education director interprets it. And this is how, this is what you have to do. Um, so to, a lot of this today, unfortunately, this can be a lot of me talking about it. Hopefully you guys will have, please have some questions because that will help tremendously. Um, I will say again that when we're talking about the legal process and what is written in this law, we'll talk a little bit about the theory behind it, what is law in the process, both federal and state. Um, but then you have to live in the world of how your district and your special education director or coordinator function. So you have to be able to go out of this theoretical or legal framework to the real life application of how it works in real life and try to make sense and combine those two because everything is a slightly confusing. That's a long way around. So it's just this part. And then I will also say that if you get to the part where you just absolutely disagree with your district or 
school, you that's where a more moral or ethical decision has to be made by you on whether you're going to follow the district's rules or you need to move on to somewhere else or push back if you're a parent. So there's a lot, there's a lot of there's a lot of weeds in this garden. I guess would be the best way to say it. There's a lot you can get very lost and a lot of rabbit holes you can go down for each of this. Um, so we're only going to try to go down a few of them. Um, so I'm going to start, and this is a slide that I usually taught off of, and hopefully you can read most of it. These are up will be uploaded to class this powerpoint has got like 130 slides or something there's a ton of information in it. um this is a slide that i used that was given to me that we used in missouri and i'm going to point out this process using this slide and then we'll flip over to what illinois says and you guys can kind of see what the difference is um, as far as timelines, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the issues with those differences um, that may have not been considered. Um, first of all, before a child can just be referred to special education, there has to be some interventions attempted um, with the child. So if you have little Bradley in class, um, go back. I don't want that. Um, if you have little Bradley in class, you can't just say on day five that there's something seems to be a little bit off of little Bradley and then refer him to special education. Um, you have to have some data for that. That data collection starts with you as a teacher collecting the data and trying some things in your classroom to see if you can get little Bradley um, up to date or caught up or try to figure out what is going on. If you cannot, and you're struggling with that after a few weeks, maybe a month, you're, you're still struggling with it, you may take, um, you may address it to the school care team, to the school child study team, the school, there's always a team that's gonna School, school RTI team, school MTSS team. There, there's a lot of names for it, but there's usually a team that has an administrator, a special educator, a general educator, usually a counselor, and um, maybe a Title I reading teacher, somebody else is in there, that meets on a regular basis, once a week, once every other week, to discuss how students are doing and if there are students with issues, they will um, address, look at the data that you bring them and address what they can do or what they think they need to do. Typically, real life is you notice something wrong with class, you spend about a month working with the student, you're collecting data based on your observations. Um, you know, let's be in here. 
And then you submit valid paperwork to this care team or RTI team or whatever your school calls it, student success team sometimes, and they will look at it. And what they're gonna do is they're gonna look to see if there are any other instructional strategies you can use. Um, to help, so they will probably come back with you and say, well, can you try this? Or we need more data on this part. Um, and so they're gonna work with you as a teacher to kind of provide some support. Um, this also puts them a lot of times on the radar for um, your response to intervention continuum or RTI or your multi-tiered system of support. Um, so that's probably moving them out of that bottom 80% up into that second one, which is about 15%, yeah, about 15%. Um, that's that second tier. And so you're gonna send them back and you're gonna go back, collect data again for two, maybe three weeks. And then you will come back to the care team and say, you know, that worked great, thank you. Bradley's getting back on track. Or you may say, Bradley is not getting back on track. We need to do some more. And then that, again, RTI or MTSS kind of usually jumps in and provides extra tutoring, um, instructional support in whatever category student is struggling in. Um, and that can be in small groups, which is when that middle 15%, this is a pyramid. So the bottom 80% is everybody, the middle part is about 15, and the top part is 5%. Or they can move them up to the top part, which is a 5%, and say we need one-on-one -on -one interventions, and somebody will work one-on-one -on -one with them. So you may have a Title I um, reading teacher, or you may have a Title I math teacher, or an interventionist, you know, if it's a behavior and maybe touching base with a social worker that are going to intervene. Um, that process of working through the RTI process can be short if the student is not making any progress at all, or it can be longer if there's gaps of looking for progress. There's no set frame of time how long a student can be trying to get appropriate instructional strategies through your RTI team, which is response to intervention, or your MTSS, multi-tiered system of support, um, or if it's behavior, interacting with the PBIS. And again, these are all, oh, triangles up there, camera, okay. Um, all triangles and the bottom part is everybody, the middle part is those first people are, and then the top part is like a one-on-one, -on -one, very small group. Um, if student is not making progress, so now you're probably eight, 12 weeks into the school year. So you're probably close to November or December at this point. And the parents are beginning to be getting worried as well. At this time, parent, you can address work with the parent and say, you know, we would like to maybe 
consider evaluating your, your child to see if there's issues that can be addressed through special education. Um, or a parent can request um, an evaluation. And a parent can request evaluation at any time during those, that first part. For a parent to request, it has to be in written form. So, and that can be a handwriting, it can be a typed letter, it can be an email, and it has to go to um, certain people within the district. It can go to the teacher, it can go to the local school administrator, it can go to the special ed coordinator, special ed head or special ed director, or it can go to the superintendent of so those are people who are have authority within the school district have to receive that letter. Um, that letter also has to have a date on it. Um, the date they put on that letter is the date that this whole continuum starts. Um, it is not the date that you receive it. Um, and that's kind of one of those, that's, First part, you know, the date the first requested it is the date that they wrote the letter um, or emailed, you know, it's time stamped. Some districts will not use that and say it's the date that we received it. So if there was a letter, it's the date that it was postmarked or the date it was checked in. Um, there's some differentiation, but really it is a date the letter was written is when your calendar countdown clock should start. And from that time, schools have 60 days, 60, and this is 60 calendar days. Um, and this is what we always operated on under Missouri was calendar days. I will tell you one of the, differences looking back to these are did before is in Illinois it is school days so 60 actual school days so you're counting Monday through Friday um, as actual school days so you get a little bit more of a leeway Saturdays and Sundays don't count Missouri counted calendar days specifically because we counted calendar days we knew that we would get it done within the legal framework of the federal government. So that's why Missouri school districts worked on the 60 calendar days instead of the 60 school days. Um, it's gonna be interesting what happens because if people count 60 school days and we have districts now that are going to four days, school days, um, that's gonna extend the time out even further. Can you guys hear me? My microphone doesn't look like it's blown up. Are you good? Okay. So in Illinois, I would say we're just forward. I know it says calendar days, but I would focus on school days because that's what Illinois does. And from the time of parental consent, we have the school had 14 days from the time the letter was received to determine whether they're going to move on and test the child for special education. And I say test because it's not really the right word. It's evaluation. Um, 
because they're not doing a test, they're just doing an evaluation to see if there's anything there that would qualify them under one of the 13 IDEA categories. And we'll get to those in a little bit. If the school district decides not to pursue an evaluation, they have to put in writing and date it and respond to the parent on why they are not going to test um, the child. You, and sometimes this is because they just recently tested the child. Sometimes it's because there's testing coming up and scheduled already. And sometimes they just don't feel that there was enough time for the child spent in intervention through RTI or MTSS are typically the reasons why a school would not move on with an evaluation. Um, but that has to be in writing and then has to be delivered back to the parent within 14 days. Um, if they are gonna test, it moves on and they pull together a team and this team is the parent, it can be the student, it is administration, it is your special education director, coordinator, um, administrator. It is a special education teacher. It is a general education teacher. It is a school psychologist. Typically the nurse is involved, typically a social worker or school counselor is involved. Um, and we'll get into who's all involved in that later on. But that team will come together and review all the data that you have. So. Remember all that data you were creating before to track them before they get in, went into child study and then track them while they're, you're in RTI or multi-tiered systems of support. Schools call it different things and they're slightly different, but basically they're the same. Um, all that data is added as well as the parent's input and any other input you can get about the student in regards to their performance in the suspected category for IDEA. Um, and then I'll say category of exceptionality. Um, we, legally, it's still disability, but I would say I like exceptionality. So you're focusing on just that specific thing. Now you can say that we he's struggling in math and he's struggling in reading comprehension and he's struggling in social emotional behavior. And then you're going to review things for each of those particular ones. Um, but you got to be very, very specific about what you're going to do because that's going to drive what assessments and evaluations are Everybody meets and they decide one or two things. Um, if they determine that there's no need to test um, a student, it, it, it stops there. And they send a letter saying that there's no need to test. We've met, we feel that we're covering all our bases. We do not need to do an evaluation. It, it stops. Or it can go on and say, we are going to move, our, move them into full evaluation. The parent has to sign off on this, okay? 
You say again, the parent has to legally sign and say, yes, I was, I agree for my child to be assessed for special education. If the parent does not, the process stops. It's done, it's over, um, end of game. Um, but they have to sign a piece of paper saying this is it. And that piece of paper has to say, why, why are you testing, or specifically are you testing for, and I'm using testing, really should be assessing. What are you assessing for? What is the basis for the reason for assessing? And what tools are you gonna use to assess? That has to be written clearly and concisely so the parents can understand. It also has to be delivered in the parents' native language. Um, that, that's one of the big ones. And if we get on like ISBE's website, which we'll do later, you'll see that we, there's a lot of this is already translated. The clock is ticking, you've done it. Now the school psychologist comes in and the parent has signed, the school psychologist starts the assessment process. Um, they may send you testing at a time They may send you um, rating scales. They may request written documentation about how the child is behaving in your class. They may request to come in and observe the child in your class or somebody else's class. They may ask you to send rating scales home to the parents or to whoever adult is living at home um, to complete. You may have to even, if the child is a little older, have the child give some input. Um, and there's a whole battery, we'll get to that too, of possible assessments or evaluations that can be done. Um, all this has to happen within 60 school days in Illinois, 60 calendar days in Missouri, 60 days in Kentucky, doesn't really, um, though this 60 is a big, just 60 is the number you have to remember. At the end of collecting all that data, again, that team comes together and determines if the child qualifies for services under one of the 13 categories of IDEA. And I will flip to where we have those categories just a little bit. The category itself, Dr. Walker, I'm going to step out a little bit. Category itself, what category the child falls in, doesn't determine should not be the determining factor of placement. It should not be the determining factor of what services are offered. It should not be a determining factor, except that the student is qualified for services. What is it the determining factor is what will help this student. Um, the only one that is a little bit different from that is the specific learning disability, which has to be specific. Um, thus the name specific learning disability. And it falls into one of the categories of math calculation, math word problems, math problem solving, 
written expression, oral language, um, receptive language, expressive language. Um, reading fluency, reading comprehension. So it's usually one of those eight, maybe those eight um, categories. And that kind of, that does somewhat drive what kind of services a student gets. Um, if an educational diagnosis is agreed on by the team, this initial team, then you have to have an IEP meeting um, to determine what services the child will get. Um, special education is services. It is not a placement. Um, the child's needs and how they access the services best determines the placement, not their, their specific category. Here's where it gets a little tricky. In Missouri, we had 60 calendar days to get to this initial educational diagnosis spot. And then if the child had an IEP, we had another 30 days to hold that IEP, um, which would give us a total calendar day of 90 calendar days, which typically is about a semester for most schools. In Illinois, this 30 days fits into these 60 days. So in Illinois, these 30 and 60 are the same number. Um, they're, they're running, those calendar clocks are running at the same time. I think this gets a little tricky because it can take, it can take quite a long time to get all the assessments depending on what you're gonna do. And then let's say it takes, you get it done in 45 days. Well, then you only have 15 days to be able to do an IEP meeting. Um, and in Illinois, parents have to have a draft of the IEP delivered to them three days prior to the meeting of the IEP. They also have to have a notice of the IEP 10 days before. And the, the math doesn't add up. So I'm kind of switch calendars here. Um, so here's the 60 days. And they're saying this algebra conference and IEP have to be held by 60th day. And this is from Illinois. Um, The issue becomes one, parents can always waive that 10 day notice. They can fill out a form and say, I waived the 10 day notice. I want to have the meeting now. That will happen a lot. You will call a parent and say, um, Mr. Jones, your child's IEP meeting is due on October 5th. So I'd like to schedule it. And they're like, great, I'm available tomorrow at 10 a.m. And suddenly you're just kind of rushed. Um, that may happen. 
and then you just have them waive those 10 days. Or you can sometimes in some districts and some districts I've worked at where my department chair laid out all the IEPs for the year and sent out notices 30 days in advance. So we, as a special education teacher, we did not have to do that part of the work. Um, he filled that out for us, um, which is helpful. The part with the 10 days though becomes a real big issue is if you give a parent 10 days notice and they don't show up, you have it scheduled for 10 days out. Everybody comes together as a team, except the parent and the parents are not there. You cannot have the IEP. You have to reschedule it and send another notice for another 10 days out. So now you're at 20 days. Um, so the second time you have I come together as a team, parents' work schedule switched again and they cannot show up. So you have to not have the IEP and send out a third notice. And that third notice says, you know, we're going to schedule for once more time. This is all documented. And you're going to hold IEP. At the third IEP, if the parent does not show up, then you can have it. Um, and this is why I think Illinois probably needs to go back and look at their timelines a little bit, because that can take 30 days from itself. And you have to have the IEP written in draft form to the parents three days before. Um, some schools will say five days before. There's a little bit of discrepancy from where I've worked in a couple of places. You cannot write an IEP until the child has an eligible. So you get eligibility and then you got to scramble to write an IEP and then hold it. Um, so if you have an eligibility meeting conference and then you have the IEP right away, there is a very much a gray area where you're walking a thin line of pushing those timeframes too close together. Um, that's why Missouri said 60 plus 30. Illinois has 60 school days total. Um, under IDEA, it is vague, vagueness on how it's done. And really it's 60 and 30 under IDEA unless the state has shrunk that time frame. Um, and if the state has shrunk it, then you have to go by what state it is. So I'm gonna stop there because that was 35 minutes. Questions on any of this? It's just a process. Yeah. It is a process and I, I strongly suggest you kind of go back and look and I'm, I put up a number of frames to go through. But I understand parent request an evaluation, you have 14 school days to respond as a district. Um, if you respond and say yes, we'll test, timeline starts and the parents sign consent then you have 60 days to hold the evaluation. And under Illinois rule, 
um, at the end of the 60th day, you have to have the eligibility conference and IEP. So really you only have 30 days for an evaluation and then 30 days to get the IEP scheduled. If you combine, and schools do combine the eligibility conference, which is typically called a domain. Um, this is a new chat. Um, domain meaning, if you combine the domain meaning and the IEP, it's a little bit wonky on the timeframes because it's I, it's hard to write an IEP if the child has not been diagnosed yet. Um, you're making assumptions. Dr. W, I have a question. Yes. Does this also go for like kids? So like in my co-op, we do like preschool screenings. Um, and so like over the summer before they go into preschool, we do a lot of screenings and things and start building IEPs then. But what if there's a student who already has a disability? Does this 60 days go with that as well? Like for instance, I have a student currently who has Down syndrome. Um, so she automatically qualified for an IEP because of her diagnosis. So would we still have, would they still have to go by these steps according to the state of Illinois? That's a great question. And that's, that's, that's a whole other reason. That's a great question. So if they have already been identified as early ed, special ed, they have an individual family service plan, IFSP, and that IFSP can carry over into an IEP. Um, and that just, that transition time is a little bit more flexible, because really at that point, you're just reevaluating and all you're going to do is ask the parents if you can do a review of educational data. And if you can just do a reeval at that time, to, it, it just kind of flows over. So it's kind of on the same one year IEP cycle at that point. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I will say that in, in the links I shared, there is in chapter one a little bit more detail about early childhood and how that links together. So that helps, but it, that's a great one. Yes, because this process is like the very initial first time that they're diagnosed. After they're diagnosed, you're on an annual review. Um, I'm trying to think of where this one came from. And again, you can see I, there's a little bit of vagueness as we go. So this says referrals from first steps are parent referrals. So if the child is in first steps or early years or whatever, and they get referred from there, that's considered a parent referral as well. Um, again, parents get a copy of the procedural safeguards in your conference room at your school. 
I strongly recommend and in your classroom, anytime you're going to see a parent, I would just print off multiple copies of the procedural safeguards. So they're always at hand. And every time you discuss IEPs, you hand them the book or offer them the book or pamphlet. And at some point, most parents will say, I have 15 of those. I do not need one more. Um, but it's how you have to offer it every time. In five days, you determine if there's reasons to suspect a disability. Data is reviewed in 30 calendar days, the parent referral, and then evaluation starts. That's the same one. So this is the same kind of type deal. And this is, again, Missouri's. Looking again at Missouri's, because again, here you see your determination within 60 calendar days, and then that extra 30 days for eligibility in um, Missouri. So Missouri allows you to spread it out a little bit. The rationale is this gives parents time to process and think about everything that's going on because it is a very stressful time for parents um, as you're going through this process. They're getting hit very, very much with a lot of acronyms and words and a lot of emotions. So it, it, it becomes very, very stressful for, for them. But I just kind of want to show that the difference between Missouri and Illinois um, varies. And then just to confuse things even more, um, these are IDEA. Now IDEA is the Individuals with Disability Education Act. This is the one that signed by George W. Bush. Um, it's been updated a few times now. It's ASA, Every Student Succeeds Act. Um, but IDEA has really been the basis of where we're continuing to work. Okay. Again, and there's the other part I want to say. Any public agency may re initiate a request for initial evaluation. So if you are suspecting a disability, you can request that a child is evaluated too. However, however, the parent or guardian or educational decision maker, which will be listed, whoever is physically taking care of that child has to approve. If the child is in foster care, that is typically the foster care caseworker. Sometimes the foster parents are educational decision makers. Sometimes foster parents are not educational decision makers. And there is somebody else that you have to get in touch with. That information is kept on file by central office or in your and the students file in their school. Um, those are the, that's the person that has to sign off on it. Um, this is what I was just talking about before, a 60 day timeline to complete initial evaluation, unless the state has an established timeline, okay? If the state is one for something different, 
then the states' rights go over. I mean, obviously, we just said Illinois says 60 days, but the IEP has to be held at that time, too. Okay, and this is an important one. That screening for instructional purposes is not evaluation. So we cannot just look at what tests the student did in class that were based on our instruction and use that as evaluation. We have to use specific evaluation tools that are um, conducted by people who are trained in conducting those evaluations, typically the school psychologists. Um, Sometimes it is a teacher or somebody else in the school that is specifically trained to be able to do that. So I wanted to share this particular part to let you know that this is here too, when you kind of look at what IDEA says. Um, the evaluation, this goes, that's just stepping into at 434 language. The evaluation has to be done in the form that is most likely to yield the most accurate information. This means to the best of the ability, you should provide and administer the assessment in the child's native language or another mode of communication that is most likely to yield information. There are nonverbal. IQ test or nonverbal tests that you can do that will possibly work back and forth. Um, but not all of our tests that we use have developed are been translated into another language. And if they've been translated, it doesn't mean that they've been um, shown to be valid and reliable. Um, in that language, so you have, and this is a school psychologist has to know what is going on. Um, hint, 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 some of our case studies and at 434 are gonna discuss, touch on this actual part. Um, if a child moves from one school to the next, the school that they move to needs to just pick up the evaluation Right. They continue it on and get it done as quickly as possible. Um, there should be communication between the two. I, I'm looking for one more thing here. At any time during the evaluation, a parent can withdraw consent and the process stops. Okay. Uh, this is this it. Provisions requiring determinant factors. So you do an evaluation, there are certain things you cannot use. This is going to be really tricky over the next two to five years. Um, If deter determinant factor for that determination is because of lack of appropriate instruction in reading, including the essential components of reading instruction, 
or lack of appropriate instruction in math. Um, because we were operated in the land of COVID, because we quickly translated to remote and then online learning, there is huge gray area on whether that children were able to receive appropriate instruction in reading and math. There will be arguments over that. There will be lawsuits over that. That is not to scare you because it probably won't affect you, except you, you'll see the districts fight that out with parents and lawyers and everybody else. But that is an important part to know that you have to show through the data you provided, you gave appropriate instruction in reading and appropriate instruction in math. So Hannah, going back to your question earlier, um, this is why on the unit plan, you have to give a rationale on why you're teaching at a certain level. If a child is at seventh grade, they should be, when you do your unit plan, you're gonna find a seventh grade learning standard and that's what you're gonna list. The child may not be academically at seventh grade. They may be socially at seventh grade or age-wise at seventh grade, but they may not be academically there. And you, you know that and you will have data that shows that they, they are not there. So then you will put in their rationale why you're teaching them at the learning standards for a fourth grade level because they're not, and that is appropriate instruction for them at that time. Um, that is a really key component in your unit plans because you're going to have to provide that rationale. Hopefully, it'll never get to the point of due process and their subpoena and your unit plans. But this is why that part is in there. Um, and that's why ITPA includes it. Besides good practice, it is really knowing. We're supposed to be working with um, two-step equations in seventh grade math, but my children are still struggling with the concept of math, um, multiplication versus division. So you cannot go into two-step equations if you do not have the skill set for um, multiplication and division and understand the difference. So therefore, I need to scaffold down and teach them multiplication and division and support that so they can eventually get to that standard up above. Um, that's why we, we do this. And this is where it's going to get very important because when schools went remote and sent home packets, there's really good debate whether that was appropriate instruction or not. And once we went live remote, I think the debate kind of went downhill a little bit. I think there's a little stronger thing that we can provide appropriate instruction remotely. Um, but you had that initial part. And it can go back as far as two years. Within the last two years, has the child received appropriate instruction? So there's a lot of little pieces in all of this. Um, this next slide, I'm not going to go to all of these, but 
these are here for you. I pulled up Illinois Parent Guide, Kentucky's Parent Guide, Indiana's Parent Handbook, which is, as you can see, is pretty outdated. It's 2015, but it is what is linked currently as of this morning on their website. Missouri's, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, as well as rights law. And in rights law, this is a wonderful resource. I think it's a great resource for parents. They do a really good in-depth review of everything special education, everything education. So if you have some free time, like you will have a bunch of free time, um, it is fun to kind of flip through these and then see the difference of how each state approaches special education. Um, and how parent friendly it is or it is not to navigate their websites to find out. It is 10.55. How are you doing? I've talked a lot. I feel like there should be some questions. <laughs> yeah, you talked a lot. <laughs> but when you don't know, it, 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 that's how it seems. You know, so, but uh, I'm just trying to gather everything slowly. Can't really push through it because it's a lot, a lot of laws and different things to um, to go with it. I've been around a lot of EPAs. I haven't sat in them, so I know that I know everybody you have to uh, have in that meeting, uh, as well as the parent. And usually, that's that's usually the hardest part getting the parent to the meeting. And um, what you know, what we have done as well as the time that's that'd be kind of met bobbling to me the time when that child can be placed in the area that suits him best from trying it with his regular uh, students so that'd be the part and i'm kind of i guess what you said within the 60 days school calendar days i guess that's giving me a little more education on why i was a whole as well as not being able to sit down with everybody at, at the table that needed to be at the table. So, uh, but I know I'm not to take this slow. Kind of know what I'm talking about and know what I'm understanding. So yeah, it's gonna be a little more challenging um, class for me, but I'm sure I'll get it. Yeah. Uh, and Sheldon, so just, you're, are you, you're at the middle school, high school level, right? Yes. Okay. So typically, you won't have to do too much with it at first um, evaluation. By the time, most of the time, 90% of the time, students have been identified and have an IEP by the time they get to that level. Uh -huh. So your time frame is making sure that you have notified the parents of the IEP 30 days before the IP was set to expire. And you do the 30 days, so if they don't show up the first time, you notify them again, and you have 20 days, and then you can notify them again, and then 10 days, and you still have time left in your schedule. Um, that's, so you, you, at the high, junior high, high school level, you're probably gonna just focus on 
My child's, I know this child has an IEP on October 3rd. By September 2nd, I need to be sending out the letter, conference meeting letter to mm -hmm. the parents. So I have, a, I have a question for you considering your background that you kind of share with us a little time in the, in the summer. From a parent's perspective, this is just off the cuff. From a parent's perspective, you know, you know, and you know your child and you know how that child should be. When does it, when does the parent take that action, I guess, or do the parents be in denial to present to whoever, whatever about their child that they need to present to so that child can be where he should, should be opposed to backslash, I'll say, or is it the law to try it this way first from what I've been reading then the 90 days kick in. Did I did I kind of say that right or no? Yeah, he did. And it, it, that's a great question because when when because the parents know Bradley before anything. Yeah. The parents do know. So there are two things that happen. A the parents can obviously see that their the child is struggling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, child suddenly stops communicating or a child has Down syndrome or there's multiple disabilities. Um, and the parent is asking for help right away. And those parents are usually pretty proactive and they can jump in at any time and say, no, I want them evaluated now. Okay. And a lot of schools, if it's a child that has ID or On the spectrum of autism where it's more visible, um, hearing loss, vision, multiple handicaps, or multiple disabilities, the school is pretty quick to respond to that. The other part is when parents really get involved and start mandating that a student gets special education needs, and you may see this at seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, is when the child suddenly starts failing classes. That the grades were doing good, everything was going great, then suddenly you hit fourth grade, fifth grade, eighth grade, 10th grade, and grades just tanked. And parents start to get scared because their child is failing. Um, and then they're gonna wanna reach in and say, you know, I would like them tested for I suspect a learning disability, I, I, that can happen. Um, and then really the third time that happens is if the child starts to get into a lot of trouble at school, um, behavioral wise, parents will come in and step in and try to get the protection of IDEA for their child. And when I say protection, it really is protection because once a child has, and this is where parents struggle with this, um, once a child has been deemed eligible under IDEA, there are certain procedures and safeguards that can happen for them. Um, so doctor, I got a question. What if that happens, he get into something do something violent at school. Maybe we'll just say through deaths for two days. 
isolated him, brought him back, uh, maybe tried to attack the teacher with a pencil. Would that be where, is that when DCFS comes in or is that another procedure from what we do to notify outside the parent when DCFS comes in? Or is it still a paperwork thing? Or is that a question too big to be talking about? I just no, missed it, it, stuff. So I was just kind of back. You know, it's coming back to me because I, you know, I wasn't in that position to make any of the decisions, but I was working with the people that we all talk about it. So yeah. So and then that's a great question because it really brings all this down to what is it real life? So if a student throws a desk and goes into ISS for a couple of days, comes back and then the text teacher with a pencil, um, the school's discipline rules for all general ed students are going to kick in. Um, and the child will get disciplined like everybody else in the school, um, whether that's a suspension or a possible expulsion or stuff. Um, DCFS gets involved when you believe that the child is in danger hurting himself. of hurting himself or being hurt outside of school or inside of school. Um, okay. Hello. Um, you're 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 welcome to sit in. Yeah, I have no problem with that. Um, you're you're not required. Oh, okay, yeah. Because sometimes I do have a break. Okay, I got it. Yes, yeah. thank you. No, but, but I'm saying you're you're welcome to stay in because you're, you're. I think you're done, aren't you? Did yeah, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Sorry about that. All right. Have a good one. All right. Okay. All right. Um, but so the child throws a desk and then the child attacks the teacher. And a parent may not want their child suspended for 90 days or sent to an alternative school. They may request an evaluation at that point. And that's when the school decides whether that evaluation is worth it. And then school parent is going to request evaluation under social, emotional, or emotional behavior disorder. Um, all this, this is like I said, gets into the weeds of the motivation. I will say, you know, my, my, my child's children, when they came to me through foster care, we didn't know anything about them and we got them into school. We got them in early childhood through parents to teacher and parents to teachers and they decided they needed to go get evaluated. We signed off on it, got evaluated and got into early childhood special education. Um, it did not really sink in to what was going on with us and I was working in the field until I realized that my child was really being tracked a very specific way. And that's when it, that's when parents go through the grief process. Mm. 
that's when the parents realize my son or daughter may never be in a school play. My son and daughter may not play baseball. My son and daughter are not going to have the normal, normal school experience as everybody else. And so there's a grief process that goes through that we will talk talk about. Um, all of this is it, it gets so messy. Um, as as an educator. Note that the 60 days or 30 days are there. Talk with your special education director. Talk with your, um, maybe have a department chair and special ed. Communicate with them. They're, they're the ones that are going to make the call on when things get done. Um, if they're the ones to make the call, you're kind of off the hook of that. So thank you for that question, Sheldon. I don't know if I... Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, I see it. So, you know, I was wondering, do, 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 do parents know, are they, like you said, on the emotional aspect of it? Um, they kind of know their kid in terms of action, even though every, every parent wants the best for their kid and they want their kid to be in a normal situation. I get that and understand that. But sometimes in some instances, it just, I have, I've seen it, you know, backfire. Um, so it, that question that came across me. Yeah. And I'm going to share the screen and I'm going to talk a little bit too about. Dr. W, can I add something to that really quick though? Yeah. So Sheldon, I, this is my second year as a para in my district. Um, and I actually become a foster parent to one of my students last year. Um, and you had kind of touched on DCFS and everything. Um, I also have a lot of parents who are also struggling mentally. Um, and so not all parents, I guess you could say, like understand that something is wrong. Mm. Um, I had a child who recently just come to us um, and the mom and dad did not know because they are lower mentally. Yeah. Um, and so they just, they thought their child was normal. Mm -hmm. So they never gave consent because they thought nothing was wrong. Um, you do have some parents, um, for instance, like my foster child um, is in special education, but did not require a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, but I fought for this child. <laughs> to get a one-on-one -on -one, uh, to be reevaluated and now has a one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so it comes from both sides. Like you have some parents who are completely overwhelmed and they don't really know the steps or anything. And so we like to say in my classroom, we like to hold their hands um, and kind of walk them through the process. Um, and then you have some parents who absolutely see something's wrong um, and will fight till the bitter end to get their child what they need, if that helps. But DCFS doesn't really come in until it's like, unless it's a foster child or unless we end up reporting it and then DCFS steps in. Um, DCFS is in my classroom, obviously, because yellow, I'm a foster parent, but um, typically it's, that's when you see DCFS. 
in they, my or they interview the kid right and he tell them certain yeah. things like if we report it um dcfs will step in mm-hmm. um and then come in and do their investigation and then either kind of take over outside of the school or right investigations null and void in my experience so there you go sure thanks you're welcome I thank you, Hannah, because it, it, it's a really important point, and one I did not touch. I had a parent who um, was a single dad. Um, he was a functional alcoholic, but he ran a tree trimming business. Um, scary as that is. Yeah. He his math skills was about sixth grade. His reading skill was about third grade. Um, he didn't see any problem with his child. His child was very active and helped him with work and didn't feel that the child needed to be assessed because in that parent's word is that my child's smarter than I am. He helps me with the books. So why do I need to put him in special education? Um, that was a very hard sell, but we had to work with the parent quite a bit um, to get the child the help he needed. Um, mostly because he was getting frustrated with the academics at school and the frustration came out and anger and he was getting suspended a lot. But on the flip side, and I will, I will, I will talk a little bit about the pond, although we're not going to go into the shallow end or the deep end of the pond on this, but coming from St. Louis and particularly North St. Louis County, um, there was, for good reason, a lot of parents who felt that their child should not be tested for special education or a learning disability because they felt like they were being targeted because of their race or ethnicity. They also felt that the schools were not providing equitable education across the county, i.e. the more wealthy schools had much more resources. Um, so they were not getting it. So there was a lot of pushback um, along race and ethnic background lines saying that, no, you're doing this because of who my child is. Um, that was a much harder discussion to have. Um, and it, it was one that came up quite a bit as we worked through it on there. And I'll be happy to do a one-on-one with, uh, kind of walk through that. But that's kind of another pond that I wanna bring out and say this, this exists and it's a real thing and there's, real evidence that children of my children who are a part of a minority population are over identified in special education. Um, and there's laws that were passed to try to stop that. Um, and it's Especially since the testing and the evaluations that were performed were not 
um, normed to their population. So they're being normed compared to a norm that is not really their norm. Um, there is some very deep rooted issues with that. Um, to address that, I, you have to have multiple assessments and you can't just use one assessment to be able to get a clear picture. This is the student's data of how they're doing academically and socially at school. You're gonna to talk to caregivers and people at home. You're gonna do informal checklist, um, examine and ranging of interpersonal behaviors to specific skills. And talking to the child and anybody who spends time with the child. So working with a paraprofessional, the school psychologist should talk with the paraprofessional who may know that child much better. Um, and the tests have to be reasonably assumed that they're gonna be valid and reliable for that um, particular child's background. I also want to say on informal assessments, these can be really, really helpful when parents fill them out. Um, I tell my parents, if I get, if I have two people at home that are primary caregivers, they each get one. I request the school psychologist give them each one and I tell them to fill them out separately and go with their instinct. Um, we will dive into what some of these checklists look like with the Connors rating scale and whatever. We will get into some of the nuts and bolts of what those look like, but because they're checklists, they're, they become that person's perception of that child. And they can be skewed one way or the other. Um, if I really want my child to, you know, receive services because of ADHD, when I get the ADHD checklist, I can read those questions and it goes pretty quickly that you can figure out which questions are gonna skew them that way. This is why you try to get as much information as you can. Um, likewise, if you don't want them, you can kind of skew it the other way. That's not what should happen. It should be the, and so I tell my parents, just go with the gut feeling, do them separately, because it is really hard to kind of say, well, sometimes, how many times does he not listen to me? Or how many times does it take to respond? You know, you as a parent have created a norm in the house. So what seems like child needs five prompts to do something, you're like, that's normal. You know, I gave him a prompt from the kitchen and then I gave him a second prompt from the kitchen and he was in the living room and then I walked in the living room, gave him a third prompt. Fourth time I turned off TV, you know, that just becomes like the norm. So it becomes really hard to be able to determine that. So those checklists, the more the school psychologist has from different people, the more they, they can kind of start to see a pattern. Um, Oh, my favorite. 
these are just uh, smothering top of the top of the whipped cream on your milkshake, a uh, possible test that you will see that students could take um, during this evaluation process. So I just kind of wanted to throw it up there. There's plenty more. You do not need to know. Well, you will know, you'll get to know what the why it is, Woodcock Johnson is. You'll probably know what the dab is and some of these other ones, the TOWLs, some of these other ones you'll kind of start to know as you go through. But um, know that there's a wide range that your school psychologist is making that decision. Um, assessment and autism. So in Illinois, when we do the IEP, you'll see that the autism page is totally separate. Um, it used to be the GARS, Gilliam Autism Rating Scale, and so pretty much used. Um, there's also Autism Screening Instrument for Educational Planning um, and ADOS as well. These are all, all scales that may show up in an evaluation or when you're writing an IEP and you're looking at recent evaluations, you'll see data from these. Um, I wanted to kind of show that just so you guys know some of these names. Um, behavior, again, Connors, the Brown rating scale are pretty used. Um, the Achenbach, I use seen a lot, and adaptive behavior. The draw person screening. Um, Good enough. I'm bringing this out because that particular one in one of your case studies, that particular test led down a particular road for the, for the child. Um, and when we do the case study, we'll kind of talk about that. I'm hitting you with a lot. These are all cognition tests, again, Nonverbal intelligence or the Tony, um, the picture vocabulary test, Stanford Binet, which is the one that we mostly know. Um, adult intelligence scale, intelligence scale for children, which is the WISC. Nonverbal scale of ability if the child is nonverbal. You could possibly use it for a child who has English language um, difficulties. So again, you're going to see some of these names and we're just kind of I'm open, showing you where the pond is. And this is the pond and this is the duck and this is, this is a beach and this is a palm tree. Um, the Vineland also shows up again quite a bit. Um, language, there's a bunch of tests. You see a process here? There's a, just tons of tests that you could possibly go through. And so that initial thing of going through evaluation, people are going to decide, your school psychologist is going to talk about, okay, these are the evaluation or assessment tools that we're going to use to assess to see if the child qualifies under IDEA. Um, 
if they don't qualify under IDEA, they may qualify under Section 504. And 504, Rehabilitation Act of 1975, it replies applies to anyone receiving federal fund. Um, and it, if the mental or physical impairment substantially limits one or more major life activities, and the child is not diagnosed as having a disability under IDEA, um, the local district may still have obligations under Section 504 to provide a free appropriate education in the least restrictive environment with reasonable accommodations and a written plan describing placement and services. A 504 plan is different from an IEP. They kind of serve the same purpose. IEP has much more teeth. There's much more legal ramifications for not filing an IEP than there is a 504. But a 504 plan can happen. This could be a student who has asthma. This could be a student who has um, seizures. This could be a student who has mobility issues and only mobility issues. Um, this could be a student who has broken both of his arms in third grade because he was stupid and ran to the book, bookmobile um, and fell and needs some help. And so you can do a 504 plan. This could be a student who has got major health issues and is in and out of hospitals. They may get a 504 plan. So this 504 is kind of the IDEA, IEP is the big one with teeth, and then there's a 504 plan, and then there's RTI below that. So kind of thinking about ways that kids can be qualified. I'm going to, this is going to be my last slide because I'm not going any farther. This is a lot for all of you. Yeah, it's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, Actually, I'm, I'm just going to stop there because I think I, this is just going to keep going. I, I, yeah, I, I think I'm going to stop, all right? Because after this, we'll get into it next week on IDA and the 13 categories and stuff. The key part of this slide, and this is slide number 24, is the bold print on here. Um, and I will say those bold print are bolded because they are tied to specific um, laws or court cases that helped define what IDEA is. So that is your teaser for next week. That those bold things come from either court cases or um, legislation. Um, that put, put these in place. And again, this is borrowing from Missouri, but it works for both Missouri and Illinois. I am so sorry that this was an hour and 25 minutes of me talking, but Sheldon, I really liked your questions and Hannah, thank you for jumping in and providing. I got, I got one question off the board with this in, in regards to, um, I haven't written down what Hannah told me, 
for using the Mac. But if I use my camera, just email it, and it's a place in Google Classroom that I can put that in there? Yeah. So under Google Classroom, mine will look a little bit different than you, but I can pull it up real quick. Which one is it? I think it's under characteristics. So I have classwork under each week. Oh, it's not under that one. But you would have a place to say quiz number one, quiz number two, quiz number three. Um, let me put it in 430. Yeah, well, I don't know where to put the quizzes. Oh, there they are. So they're just under study quizzes. So you would click on your assignment and then you would just click on it and there's a spot that it says upload file. And you upload a file for it to be your picture and submit it. And if you have issues with that, don't worry about it. Um, great question. But I, I will work with it. And if you have to email it to me, Sheldon, that is fine. And then I, until I get a chance to be able to put up a thing, you can email and I check my emails. I'll make sure it's there too. Um, I'm not going to penalize just because something is a little bit late on these. These are pretty much open. Can a student have both an IEP and a 504? Typically, no. I can think of a couple incidents where they might, um, but typically they would have, uh, what would be under 504 would probably fall under OHI category, category under IEP or other health impairment. And that would address whatever was in the 504. Um, can a child go from a 504 to an IEP? Absolutely. Can a child go from an IEP to a 504? Absolutely. Um, very seldom do we have both of them. I will not say never, because never is a very long time, but very seldom would that happen. Typically, whatever would be covered under 504 could also be covered under other health impairment on your IEP. So you would just remove the 504 and put it under an IEP and go from there. That was a question from the chat. I hope that helps my convoluted way. All right, questions, comments, concerns, complaints, celebrations. No, like I was saying, I was just trying to get a rhythm, take these tests, looking back and forth at the other um, classes to see, you know, what I need to do and what's behind me. That's pretty much for me. I will say, and I apologize, you can probably turn off notifications or just ignore everything. Um, nah. I'm going to be making some changes to Google Classroom, just uploading stuff over the weekend. Um, and clearing some stuff, cleaning up my Google Classrooms because they're a little bit of a mess right now. Um, don't freak out. 
Um, it, it, it's just going to be record keeping, and I have no way to turn off notifying you every time I make an update. And so you I think it's good, it's good for me because I'll, I'll be busy doing other stuff. Yeah. But you may be cussing me. Come, come Monday, you may be cussing me because I'll blow up your email when I'm making these changes. So I, I apologize in advance. Um, feel free to use whatever words you need. Is it? Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> hey, Dr. W. Yes. Um. Okay, so for my co-op, because I'm trying to stay out of my, like, with my co-op, we're actually inside schools. Um, but, so I'm trying to do everything through my co-op, if that makes sense. Yes. But, um, can my interview with the school psychologist be via Zoom? Yes, it can be okay. via Zoom. It can Perfect. be a phone call. It could be, you can email them questions and they can respond. Um, awesome. You can just record it and however however you want to do it. Thanks, because I'm trying not to have to drive like three hours to go meet up with this lady. I was like, absolutely not. No. And typically, I mean, do not do not drive three hours. Blake, you came on just at the right time. We're just getting ready to oh. sign off. Good to hear, huh? <laughs> Um, any any questions or anything? For those that have been here, if you want to hang around, it's fine. If not, I'm, I'm just going to kind of check in with Blake here and make sure everything's good. You guys One other Blake don't have. I, uh, I, I got in contact with my psychologist. I looked at some of your questions. I may use those. If I do it earlier, you just want that every question that you have written out. I thought I thought a video would be nice. But. A video would be good. Yeah. And you did not have to use all the questions I wrote out. If you want to go somewhere else or the conversation goes somewhere else. How many I'll questions is, is it a recommendation for you, Bradley? Is it doctor, professor? I got so many names for you. Is it is it so a, a number of questions um, that you're looking for? You're gonna hate this answer, Sheldon. But no, here's the answer I will give you. Okay. The whole purpose of the exercise is for you to learn what a school psychologist does. Gotcha. All right. Gotcha. So however many questions you need to ask to get that answer. So what they do and what they won't do. There's some things that they won't do. Okay. Do and don't. Okay. Well, all right. I, I got you on that. That's the end of you learning. Ask them. Time, well, how did they bracket? Okay, I got you. Just a regular interview. Got you. Yeah. It may be earlier. I was just looking. I said that's November 22nd. It might be a little earlier. So yeah. I was just, just asking. I um, think that's it. Uh, so uh, 